0: the easier it is to get the contract from the federal government the harder it is to transfer that contract to somebody else so if you got an 8a sole source congratulations you just got some revenue and some profits and that's terrific But that's going to be an extremely hard thing to transfer to a third party.
1: Welcome to GovCon Live. I'm Cy Alba, a partner in Polaro Maz's Government Contracts Group. I recently sat down with Sharon Heaton, founder and CEO of SB Liftoff, to discuss growth strategies for small businesses moving to the mid-tier or how to stay small for a longer period of time. It's well-known that exceeding your size standard can be the death knell for small businesses in federal contracts. Companies that exceed their size standard are unable to bid for new work, recompete for their old work, or in some cases, even receive options after recertifying their size on current contracts. Faced with this reality, many small business owners look for a possible exit through the sale of their company or ways to stay small at the 11th hour. Unfortunately, far too few small business federal contractors understand strategies for successfully setting themselves up for the sale or long term small business program participation. Because of this, they miss crucial opportunities to properly prepare for their graduation from small business programs, whether that be through the sale of their business or through some sort of restructuring. That said, My conversation with Sharon walked through many of the key strategies companies can use for maximizing the value of their small business, as well as tactics to employ regardless of whether you want to sell or try to stay small for a longer period of time. This podcast is for informational purposes only, but we hope to have some fun too. We're not rendering legal advice because your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. All right, with that disclaimer over, let's have some fun. Welcome today on Exiting from the Valley of the Shadow of Death, Successful Growth Strategies for Small Businesses Moving to the Mid-Tier. I'm Cy Alba. I'm a partner with Polaro Mazza, a law firm in D.C., servicing mostly small to mid-sized companies who will deal with this kind of question all the time. We're kind of really helping people now take those next steps and grow. I'm here with a good friend, Sharon. You want to introduce yourself?
0: Certainly. My name is Sharon Heaton. I am the CEO of an M&A advisory firm called SB Liftoff. And I would say 50% or more of our work is done in the GovCon arena. And we have extensive experience dealing with folks that have designations, whether those are veteran-owned, small business, 8As, etc. cetera. So we live in this world of GovCon companies with designations, and what does the future look like for them?
1: Yeah, exactly, and that's what we've Sharon and I before we started. We're just talking about some of the things we've seen our clients go through, and what's what's really important to people who we've seen really be successful, and then also some of the things that we've seen people make mistakes about. Kind of to kick us off, I just wanted to go through some high-level issues where. I've seen people really think small, if you will, in a lot of different ways. Small businesses, thinking about going after small business set-asides. And the reason for that is because a lot of the profit margins on that work is really high. You have less competition, sometimes even sole source. And people get caught up in some of these big margins, low competition work, and they, they fail to think bigger. Not just bigger in the sense of going after larger contracts or full and open work, but bigger in the sense of long term as well and what you really want. Do people want to sit there and continue to make good money? But then what happens is your size standard and growing too large really creeps up on you. And that's those companies that really fail to walk, if you will, in this this valley of the shadow of death, this mid-tier where a lot of companies just die because they don't know how to compete in the full and open marketplace. Because as a lot of people know, if you're in the federal market, you're either large or you're small. That's it. There is no in-between. There is no mid-tier program where you get special benefits. And especially if you're in a, one of those small NAICS codes, you, let's say you're in a $7 million, $10 million, or even $16.5 million NAICS code. If you get to, if you're, say you're in 16 dollars if you get to be a $16.9 million company, you're now competing with Lockheed Martin or Northern Grumman or whoever happens to be doing the work that you're doing. There is no difference between you and a multi billion dollar mega corporation. So how do you sort of plan for that stuff? And how do you grow and be successful? And that's kind of what we want to talk about. One of the things that I, I see a lot of times is people sit there and they don't think about, well, what's my NAICS code? What is my size standard? Am I in one of those small size standards? But am I close to a different size standard? Or if you're brand new and you're setting up your company, go on beta.sam, which used to be FedBizOps, see what kind of work is out there and what sort of NAICS codes, the larger NAICS codes, that you might be able to play in if you kind of tweak your business a little bit. Or if you can't do that and you need to start your business and you do, you know, janitorial services or things that have some of the smaller NAICS code or, frankly, legal services is as a relatively small NAICS code as well. And if that's the area you're in, get in there. But as soon as possible, start to think about what other stuff you could diversify into or how you could compete or who else is out there. What do your competitors look like so that you're you're growing into those other codes? And I think one of the things people really need to think about is what do I want? Do I want my company to be like a lifestyle company and make good money? Or do I want to grow it into something that has intrinsic value? And that's something that I know, Sharon, we've been talking a lot about. So I know, do you want to go through some of your thoughts and ideas on on that sort of major question?
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Si. I really appreciate that. When we're talking to companies, The first thing that we try and figure out is, do they actually have a company or do they have a job with staff? You know, The first thing is, is there a management team separate from the owner? I sat in one meeting where I was talking to the business owner who was talking about how much he wanted to sell. And as I was sitting there, at least four or five different people came into the room to say, I need to buy a new sink. Can I have the authorization to do that? Or this client called, what should I do about it? And I turned to the business owner and I said, you really don't have a business. What you have is a job with a lot of assistance. Because gosh, if you went into the parking lot and got hit by lightning, there is no company there. You are the company. So the first thing is making sure that the company actually is an independent entity. The second is, and this goes to what you were saying, Sai, you've got to decide what you want that company to be. When you grow up and some people put it in terms of being a lifestyle company, some people put it in terms of wealth generation, whatever, but there's almost a a continuum, which is that the easier it is to get the contract from the federal government, the harder it is to transfer that contract to somebody else. So if you got an 8A sole source, congratulations, you just got some revenue and some profits and that's terrific. But that's going to be an extremely hard thing to transfer to a third party. So the question is, kind of going back to what Sai was saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? If what you're looking for is to generate profitable revenue for as long as you're working, absolutely. That is a very viable business decision. If your goal is to be able to sell the company and you're saying that you want to have an entity that has value in and of itself then there's a whole set of different characteristics that need to come into play. And as you've said many times, Sai, the time to start thinking about that is not six months or 12 months before you sell, but rather the earlier you think about it, the more likely you are to maximize the return when you sell it. But nonetheless, changes can even be made in the two or three years prior to the sale. And I think about it kind of simply, which is there is this valley of death. You know, you start off and whether it's a service disabled veteran owned or a woman owned or even small business, you're doing pretty well. And let's say you've got a 16-5 NICS code and your five year running revenue is nine or 10 and you're seeing a lot of growth ahead of you. That's really good because then the buyer can come in and say, all right, I'll have a ride from this nine or 10 million in revenue up to 16 and then I'll decide what I can do. what's really difficult is if you're already at let's say 14 or 15 million on a five year because then what you're t- you're selling is you're selling an entity that needs to make the jump to full and open and if you're selling an entity that needs to make that jump that you've not already made then somebody's going to give you a very substantial discount for that so you have a choice you can either sell earlier or you can make that jump yourself and then sell a company that's got much more full and open or exclusively. But the worst time to decide is when you're getting within a year or two of getting out of your nix codes, because no buyer wants to buy your problem. So you've either got to have given them an opportunity to not have that problem, or you've got to solve that problem for them.
1: Yeah. And that's where I think if you've gotten really comfortable in the small business space, that's a really good way to put it, Sharon, the idea that it's easier to get the contract, it's harder to, to sell it or harder to do anything with it. Because the other thing I'll note is that even if you're going to buy, because a lot of companies, they, they want to buy to grow if they're really going to push into that mid-tier, which is a great strategy as well. But if all your work is small business and you buy another company you're going to have to recertify on your own work as well. Because if it's a merger or acquisition, you trigger that recertification rule. So you got to be careful with that. And then there's some arguments that, look, if you're, if you're not going to merge it, if you're just going to acquire it and hold it as a subsidiary, then there was no merger to you. And you did you acquire the other company, but did that acquisition impact you? You could try to play with whether or not you have to recertify personally but I've seen a lot of companies that are playing in the small space who want to buy and then have to struggle with that rule, the recertification rule. And so more thinking about, well, what else can I do? Can I get into more joint ventures? Can I get a lot of sort of long-term IDIQ work? So at least I know I'm good for five years while I'm still small. Or doing some asset acquisitions while you're still small so that when you recertify on the work that you buy, you're still a small business and you're not taking on the revenues of the company you're acquiring. Things of that nature that give you at least some runway to plan for the bigger, brighter future, if if you will. Because if you're gonna make a bunch of major acquisitions of stock and merge companies together, you're probably going to recertify on both your current work and the prior work that you're a large business. Now, that doesn't automatically terminate everything. But if there's big IDIQs and you recertify as large, most of them nowadays, the the new ones that are being awarded, you're not going to be able to continue bidding on task orders. So you might lose that revenue that you were planning on or potential revenue. Now, current work you have, you're fine. And if it's big enough, like I've, I've had sub clients win major, major, major task orders, and that's not going to go away even if they recertify it as large. And they know that. And so they can count on that runway to really take themselves to the next level if they were thinking about it. And there's one company in particular that really thought about, there's this massive contract that I'm going to go after, this major, major task order, single award, like major nine-figure task order. I'm going to go after that. And if I win that, I'm good to go. But as soon as I do that, I'm either going to sell. And if people don't want to pay me enough, then I'm going to grow and I'm going to build a whole team. And they were incredibly smart, almost a genius in how they went about doing that. They won the contract. And then they started acquiring more and more people from large companies to help them go after that full and open work while they had huge revenues rolling in to bankroll that. So that now looking forward, it's been five years or four years, they're in this position where they have teams from Lockheed, from Booz Allen, from major companies that they've brought in that have helped them learn how to go after full and open work. So that three years from now, if they want to sell the company, they're gonna get a huge windfall on all of that investment that they made. And so, but they had to give up, potentially give up stuff, other work that they might have gone after. To really focus on this one big contract to drive them to the next level. So I think that's one thing too about what you want to focus on. And to Sharon's point, having a great team, I think is is critical to really surviving in the mid-tier.
0: Well, that was a really good point, Sai. And you were actually talking about how to survive the valley of death. And there's two ways of it. A company can either decide that it's always going to stay within its nix code And will constantly be juggling things, sometimes even selling off assets in order to make sure that their revenue stays below. That's clearly one option, but you're not generating a company there that the engine itself is going to be valuable. It's just that the revenue that you're creating is real value. That's a perfectly legitimate decision. If, in fact, what you're looking to do is to be able to create an asset that can be transferred to another party and have a wealth generation effect as a result of that. Then you either need to A, avoid the valley of death, or B, solve the valley of death. And what you just described is the best way of doing that, which is find some revenue that you're going to use to fund the operations as you move to a full and open, recognizing that your margins may well go down, recognizing that you're probably less likely to win as many contracts, your P win might go down. But once you start landing, particularly prime, full and open contracts, then the world is your oyster. And the more that you can get there, that is a major change. One of the things that I tell clients is, I could be looking at a company that has, let's say $3 million of EBITDA. But if that's $3 million of EBITDA and it's an 8A, I'm gonna give it one valuation. If it's a 3 million in EBITDA and it's a small business, I'm gonna give it a different valuation. If it's a 3 million in EBITDA and it's full and open, that valuation is substantially higher. So you've probably all heard about EBITDA multiples and, you know, and that's where you get a company that's 3 million in revenue. If I multiply that by a three multiple, that's nine. Nine is a lot of money, but if I can do that by 10 as a multiple, that's now 30 million. That's a big difference. So the question becomes, it's the same company, but the, what are the characteristics of that company? And that's where we're talking and so much of this importance comes in.
1: Yeah. And some of the other things I've seen that people can use as like a stopgap, and I'm sure some folks are doing this right now, is if you get mentor-protege relationships, you can piggyback off of the status of someone else. But don't be too aggressive, obviously, because you got you can have false claim act and other problems which will set you back, far back. So you know, going after things, getting some good proteges that are willing to learn and grow, but also, if you are the mid-tier, you also need to look for protégés that might be a little smaller that could be good investments. So if you're going to take that 40% ownership in them, make sure you're sort of getting a good bang for your buck and getting in there. And that 40% ownership in that company is going to stay forever, right? Unless they buy you out. That's actual equity that you're getting. And so if you have enough of these, you might even be able to start like a little revenue stream yourself, but know that... 8-8 companies might give you a lot of good revenues. You get sole source awards on your joint ventures and stuff like that, but they can't kick off as much revenue to you as another company. And also, if you're forming just general joint ventures, you're going to have to stay small unless you're a mentor. So sort of remember that as well. You can only have three protégés, and the successful companies that have grown actually that I know have those three protégés and are helping them in different areas which also helps them diversify their work. So finding good protégés can help you in two ways, not just dollars and cents and going after small business work, but also to help you yourself diversify. You can help these guys grow and let's say you've done integration or something like that and now you've got this protégé that knows cyber, but they don't know anything about GovCon. You can grab them, bring them in, mentor protégé, grow them up, and now you essentially have a cyber arm. You might want to buy them. Who knows, right? If they have a lot of good work, you might want to buy them and use that to go after the full and open work, or help them grow and sell them, and you own forty percent, so you get a windfall there. Or again, bring it in together, and you you sell yourself later. So there's a lot of different options.
0: It feels like the government giveth and the government taketh away. You know, they taketh away because they put this recertification requirement in a couple of years ago. It used to be that. Company A would buy company B, and you would go off into the sunset together. And the government said, no, 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 no. Upon there being an acquisition, within 30 days, the buyer has to recertify as to whether or not they meet all the standards for both themselves and for the merged entity. Well, that was a real limitation. Because prior to that, if the small company, if you were buying somebody that qualified, that's great. Now you're dealing with an affiliation aggregation. So it makes it a little more challenging. So, the government taketh away, but the government giveth at the same time. And that's really the mentor protege stuff. The mentor protege is incredibly important because Sai has made reference to this, but for those of you who don't live in this world, there's such a thing called the affiliation rules. And the affiliation rules will really basically aggregate all of your revenue. And it will say, hey, listen, if you are working very closely with another company, it might well be that if you're the prime and there's 100 million coming in, you've got a sub, you're still getting that 100 million. If you do a mentor-protege, you can actually create a new entity and that new entity takes on the characteristics of however you set it up. So very often it would be a veteran-owned company that be the protege and a large might be the mentor and you can avoid the affiliation rules. And this is a relatively new thing. It's only in the last three years or so that the mentor-protege rules have really taken off big time. And we've now sold a number of companies that were pretty much at their size limits as the company overall, but they were able to grow because of their ownership of the joint venture. So we've sold companies where the most significant asset that they had was their joint venture, not necessarily the things that were going on in the company per se. Cy, have you seen much of that?
1: Yeah, and what's critical about what you're saying is if you're a mentor and you're in a joint venture, your sale and the recertification that that would trigger for that joint venture or yourself, it might not matter because the mentor-protege joint venture is not reliant upon the size status of the mentor. It's only reliant on the size status of the protege. So even if you're a mentor and you're purchased by Lockheed or whatever, you clearly would size out of any size standard that's available. It doesn't matter. Yeah, you're going to have to recertify that joint venture, but it's irrelevant because of the protection of the mentor protégé program. So, all those revenues that are small business revenues, or even 8A or HubZone or whatever, the value of that is pretty much dollar for dollar to any buyer. Whereas if someone were to buy the protégé, to your point, Sharon, the value goes way down because the recertification might even trigger a termination and for 8A in particular. It the rule says. If you transfer an 8-A contract or there's the ownership of an 8-A company transfers, the default rule is that everything gets terminated unless you get a waiver. So it's much more difficult to sell those 8-A companies or 8-A revenues. But if you're a mentor
0: and you're tapping into that source, it's a whole different ballgame. There's kind of three levels here. And Cy, correct me if you disagree with this. But first, any two companies can form a joint venture. There's nothing that prevents that. But a joint venture per se doesn't have magic. It only has magic if it's a joint venture between a mentor protege, because that's when you get to avoid the affiliation rules. And that's where you start to allocate out revenues and stuff like that. So if two companies were to form a joint venture, that's fine. But it's only the mentor protege that really turns that into a major growth engine, because the affiliation rules get sidestepped. Is that a fair assessment, side?
1: Yeah, because even if two small businesses form a joint venture, you still have that exemption from affiliation, but not if you're acquired. If any member of that JV is acquired or does an acquisition, actually, then it will trigger recertification of that person, that member's size status vis-a-vis the joint venture. So if you become large, as soon as you recertify that JV, the JV becomes large. But that's not true if you're a mentor because your size is really irrelevant.
0: So I was dealing with a client recently that came to me with a joint venture and they were very, very excited because they actually had some designations and they were working with somebody who was full and open that had some really great past performance and some qualifications that the smaller company didn't have. And they said, we've got a joint venture, let's go forward. And I said, do you have a mentor protege between you and your joint venture party? And I, they said, no. I said, well, you're under a different set of rules is there some reason why you didn't? And they found out, they said, no, they didn't know that they needed to. So it's joint venture and mentor-protege, which leads to the benefit that Sai is talking about of being able to essentially grow, but only getting credit for, responsibility for the percentage of the work that you're actually doing. So those are really important tools. And it's something that the government has basically established relatively recently.
1: Right. And that's also, I think, the other thing to note is that the rules out there don't allow you to form, at least for 8A, woman-owned, service-abled vet in particular. They don't allow you to form subsidiaries and have those subsidiaries take on the properties of the parent, i.e. 8A, woman-owned, service-abled vet. But if you're just a vanilla small business or if you're a HUBZone company, you can form subsidiaries and those could qualify as small or you could get that subsidiary independently qualified as, as HUBZone. That's possible. And so therefore, it opens up some other opportunities. If you're trying to stay small or if you want to deaffiliate, decouple those organizations, if you're a small business, vanilla small business, and you have separate subsidiaries for every line of business and some holding company, that's usually something you'll see in like private equity or larger firms, but you could do that. And then, if you have a situation where your subsidiary A does professional consulting services and that business dries up, or you want to focus on cyber IT that one of your other subsidiaries do, if you sell off that professional services subsidiary, all five years of revenue attributable to that fall off your books completely. And so, that's a way to stay small. What you can't do is have one company. And this is why being 8A or, or serviceable, Able Better Woman-Owned kind of hamstrings you. You can't have one company and have multiple divisions inside and then be able to sell off the assets of that division and then take away the revenues attributable to that division. You used to be able to do that. I actually helped a few clients in the past five years do that to start hiving off revenues. But SBA changed the rule in January. So you can't do that anymore because they didn't like what was happening. And so because you can't do that, the only way to have that benefit if you're 8A or service abled vet or woman-owned is if you have a joint venture, you get some of the benefit because like Sharon was saying, only the revenues attributable to the work you do in that joint venture fall to your books, whereas the rest of it goes to whoever the joint venture partner is. And then even if you sell that joint venture though and somebody replaces you. You don't sell your business, just the joint venture. The revenues you got from that joint venture don't come off of your books because the JV is not considered to be an affiliate. And so that percentage still sticks with you forever. The only thing you can do is sell your own company and then obviously you'd have to start a new one and deal with non-competes and everything else. But if you've taken that opportunity to grow and then become a mentor to other people, then you get all those benefits where you can sell yourself and get that dollar for dollar benefit, which you can't do if you're a protege and you can't do if you're just 8A or if you're a woman-owned or you're service-able vet. So I think those are the worst ones. They could be the best as far as making money today. But as far as building long-term value, 8A is the worst because of all the other rules. And then you've got woman-owned or service-able vet because those are attached to you as a human being. And it really limits who you can sell to versus HUBZone or small business, which is more about the size standards. And you can play games or for HUBZone, someone could buy you, hold you as a subsidiary and maybe still qualify as HUBZone, even though they're affiliated for size. As long as you're small under your NAICS code, you can deal with some of the HUBZone rules independently.
0: Let me just clarify what I think you just said, which was if you've got a a company and you create different subsidiaries and you sell one of those subsidiaries, do you get to take all the revenue from that subsidiary off of your books going forward and that's a way of reducing your size? But if you didn't have subsidiaries, you just had different divisions within the holding company itself, you could not subtract out that revenue. Is that what I heard you say? Right, the prior revenue, right. Yes, now not everybody can have subsidiaries, Again, if you're a veteran-owned or if you're a woman-owned, it goes to you as a human. But if you're a small business, you can actually have subsidiaries there. Is that accurate? Yeah, that, right. And I should clarify also, you could have subsidiaries,
1: but they won't qualify as whatever the designation is for the main company. Because most of these, 8 eight has a specific rule on this, but even STBOSB or woman-owned, if your subsidiary is 100% owned, by the parent who's, say, an SDVOSB, that's not considered to be like a second job. Whereas if you had a veteran that had multiple companies that were sister companies, you can have maybe one. But then after that, you start to get into this whole question about whether you're violating the full-time rule for your actual SDVOSB. So I do have a couple clients who have two SDVOSBs or two woman-owned companies. But once you get to three or something, it becomes much more difficult but whether or not you have it set up as a subsidiary or their sister companies, because they're separate legal entities, even under the new rule, if you sell that, yes, you hive off all the revenue attributable to that subsidiary or sister company going back forever, whatever the rule what changes. You,
0: what I'm hearing you say, and I've, this is my experience as well, is that the world is a much more complicated place now. You know, when I started getting started in MA and GovCon, you could essentially say, I wanted to sell. This particular asset, and they would just take that revenue off your books going backwards. Can't do that anymore. And transactions get done for exactly that reason. I had a client recently that had a very valuable IDIQ. Actually, it was a T4NG, which basically had a five-year recert requirement. So you get it, you get all of this work, and then you have to recertify at the end of five years. Well, they had gotten so much work that they were not going to be able to recertify So they were looking at a cliff and saying, do we want to go into the full and open market or do we recognize that we're just not going to be able to do this? What they did is they turned around and sold the T4NG asset and the task orders to a smaller company that with the amount of revenue that transferred over still would be able to recertify a year later. And that was an important component of the deal because that contract, had tremendous value to the small buyer because they could continue to use it for the next six years, where it was losing value for the existing holder of the contract because after a year, it was going to basically not be able to be used anymore. So thinking about that stuff in advance, even a year or two could make a huge difference in terms of wealth generation for the company.
1: Yeah, what's interesting is there's another sort of reverse example that I've dealt with as well with, and this is a particularity with Oasis. But with with Oasis, if you are acquired or do an acquisition and you recertify as large, you get off ramped. Whereas if you grow organically and make that certification at five years that you're now a large business, you get moved into the full and open Oasis. So what's interesting is if you're Almost to that five-year, I'm trying to think of when that's coming up. It's not too far in the future. So when you're coming up on that five-year recert, if you were thinking about selling your company and Oasis, you have all this work on Oasis It might be a big a big revenue generator as far as sales price, what you might want to do is wait, recertify that you're a large business, you get pushed over into the large business Oasis pool, and then there might be large companies that missed out on Oasis or that are subcontractors that want to be primes and compete and that oasis vehicle could become a you know lucrative value driver for your sale.
0: Absolutely. So let's talk about the valley of death there for a moment because we've talked about how joint ventures can help you get past that but there's another element to it which is if you do a joint venture you can be getting developing past performance and qualifications that you otherwise wouldn't have. And that you know whether you get it through your joint venture, you get it through a subsidiary, for a subcontract relationship you can then have that experience to then bid on full and open. So you've got to be thinking about what are you trying to solve for? Are you trying to solve for profitable revenue over the next year or two or three? Perfectly legitimate goal. That's what everybody with a job is doing. Or are you trying to solve for having a you know a wealth generating asset and that can be more challenging. So kind of going back to where Sai started, you need to think about what is it that you're trying to achieve and how is the best way of getting there? Sai, I want to be cognizant of the audience where you've been talking for about 35 minutes now. Do we have any questions from people that would like to ask us anything? Where have you
1: seen people take a 40% ownership stake taken in protégés that are typically purchased at the outset of the relationship, or are they optioned earlier and subject to winning of certain contracts? I think the issue there is people. I've seen it done many ways. Right, right out of the gate, people take ownership in their their proteges, or sometimes what happens is people wait and only when they think the relationship is going well, or that there's some real value, then do they jump into it. And that's something where I think you could do it either way. Now, there's no like, wrong answer, but if you find a protege that is really to really take it under your wing, to grow and, and develop, and they're very small, you obviously get a lower purchase price. And you can yes, buy that, in and get that's that. That's exactly right. <laughs> right. And if you're really going to help them and you see a lot of, of value in like the individual who owns the company or some of the management and the, maybe the space that they're in, the expertise they have, but they don't have the resources to grow or the understanding of the market, that kind of stuff, then you can make a heck of an investment in that.
0: And really grow and take off i've actually seen some mentors do the early acquisition and then require some amount of that purchase price to be used by the company to fund the growth that's expected as a result of winning new contracts because of the relationship with the mentor so that the seller of the protege is selling 40 percent but they may not be able to put that full purchase price into their pocket some of it might have to be reinvested in the company To support the growth, but that's a way of kind of both sides making some references to an investment for the future. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, again, because in some smaller companies it's important, and we've mentioned this before building a management team. You know, I gave the example of somebody who was sitting there and everybody was asking him all of these questions. And I said, you know, you don't have a company at this point. It's really important to look deeply at your company and think about oh my gosh, can I go on vacation for a week? Will the company be there when I come back? If by chance, God forbid, I get hit by lightning tomorrow, will my company survive me? Because when a buyer is looking at doing a purchase, they're going to say, I'm about to put a lot of money into the hands of the owner of the seller. And they might have less motivation if they've got X million dollars in their pocket than they have right now. So that buyer is very focused. Now, the trick, of course, is that you need to have a really good management team with you, and most sellers want to maintain confidentiality. So the trick is figuring out how to brag about the really qualified people that you have while maintaining that confidentiality. And that's generally something that you kind of give up a little bit of confidentiality over time. We start deals where there's basically the owners know about it and maybe nobody else. And that once we get a little bit further into the deal and certain by the time that we have a letter of intent, there's usually another one or two people that the owner brings into that circle. And one of the interesting things, and it's kind of a push-pull as well, is something called the key employee issue. Because a buyer wants to see that there's other management at the team. On the other hand, if anybody is a key employee, they might require that key employee to sign an employment agreement in order to do the acquisition. Well, that doesn't sound bad, but it gives that key employee veto power over doing the deal. The perfect scenario is to have a well-balanced team where there's, you know, three or four different people, but that as valuable as they are, the company's not going to collapse if one of those people took a different job or something terrible happened. So there's a fine line to be walking on these key employees, but understanding the strength of your management team is really an important element going to market. And another thing I wanted to put on the table is that the market right now is very attractive for GovCon sellers. There are more buyers out there than there are sellers. And I'm seeing buyers stretch to buy companies with designations and recognizing they might not be able to recompete for work and the capital is clearly there. So one of the interesting things that's happening in the last couple of years is because of the valley of death, I'm seeing smaller companies acquiring bigger ones. And that's not what you used to see. You don't see that in the full and open market. But in the designation market, let's say you have a 16.5 Nix code, and you're sitting there at 11. Well, You know, you can't get another company with $11 million in revenue on a five-year rolling basis and do that acquisition. You've got to find a company that's got less than $5 million so that they can recertify. So it's kind of changed the market somewhat where smaller companies are now buying larger ones. And the financing is available for that.
1: Yeah. And and what I'll say there, too, I've I've been involved in, in very successful ones like that. Things have gone great. And I had one where I wasn't involved in the transaction, but after the fact, I got brought in. I think the transaction happened in February and I was brought in in June because after the transaction happened, it was a new 8A company that was buying into like a graduated company and it was going to be kind of their ticket to jumpstart themselves and really grow and succeed and sort of maximize that nine year period so that they could be prepared to kind of walk in this valley of the the mid-tier. And what happened, though, is they were small and they didn't want to spend any money or as little as possible. And so they relied upon the bank and they relied upon sort of themselves to do some of the due diligence. And unfortunately, they didn't realize that different folks, like the bank, is looking at different things than you would as a business owner. And when they got in there... Nobody caught the fact that the company was actually losing money on particular contracts. And so after the acquisition happened, they ended up losing about 150000 a month. And this was a small company that couldn't, couldn't afford that. And it, it was that not is- meant to be a, a loss leader. So you got to be careful. And spending some money, this individual gave an accountant 24 hours to look at everything before like an M&A CPA who I know, they did, They always do a good job. They gave them like 24 hours to look at the transaction and the CPA raised a whole bunch of red flags in an email. But the problem was the CPA said, hey, I need and then gave a laundry list of documents they wanted to look at, which I think the buyer saw just dollar signs or bills that would accumulate if the CPA took the time to look at the documents. And so just decided, well, look, the bank or whoever was doing the diligence, my own CFO, the bank wouldn't be lending me money or my CFO wouldn't be letting me do this if they didn't think everything looked okay. And they missed it and kind of disregarded things. So just be careful. Like don't get kind of starry-eyed when you're when you're going into things because the opposite can happen. What you thought would be your ticket to success in not just the eight-a program, but growing into the mid-tier could
0: be your downfall ultimately. And that's, it, that's really an interesting point. We work with both buyers and sellers. But when we're working with a the seller, there's a fairly intense period at the very beginning of an engagement where we're doing due diligence on the seller. And I've had clients turn to me and say, you're not buying me, Sharon. Why are you doing all of this? And I'm saying, because any competent buyer is going to do this kind of due diligence. And we need to see what's there before a buyer does. Every company has strengths and every company has challenges. And don't think that you're gonna be able to hide those challenges until after a deal because occasionally people make mistakes like Sai is talking about, but most of the time they'll find that. And two things kills deals. One is surprises, and two is it just takes too much time. So by doing some fairly intensive due diligence before we start talking to buyers, We understand what the challenges are of that company. And that's pretty important because we tell buyers, what are those challenges? So by the time that they're putting a letter of intent on the table, that's already been incorporated into their thinking. Nobody should ever think as a seller that I'm going to be able to sweep these things under the rug and be able to walk away. Because even if you do, there'll be reps and warranties. There'll be all sorts of things that can come back and really kind of be a problem. But the most important element is we look to be fair. We look to be fair to our sellers. And we certainly look to be fair to the buyers as well to make sure that there is a full understanding of what's going on here. And that due diligence that you're talking about is critically, critically important. Yeah. And
1: that actually reminds me, too, when you're doing that sort of due diligence when you're going to sell, maybe like way beforehand, to also think about if you're going to size out and you're going to start getting into that mid-tier level and you want to survive in there to be able to sell later or sell at bigger multipliers, is to try to live it now. And I think people don't think about that. They're like, oh, well, why would I waste profit on getting compliant with rules that don't apply to small businesses? Or to really understand some of the the cost accounting issues or things of that nature. And that's true if you're going to stay small. But if you want really want to succeed, there's things that you're probably not thinking about that are going to go into your pricing. And that's about like sharpening your pencil and things and why the margins are lower. Because there's extra burdens that are placed on large companies that they're going to have to comply with. And if you're going to play in that space, you're going to have to comply with. And whether or not it's about winning bids and understanding what the rules are or avoiding false claims liability, or more importantly, probably to you, is making sure that a buyer doesn't see these things when they come and look at you. And I've had situations where people don't understand what some of the rules are and some of the compliance issues are as they've grown and they didn't even think about it. IP issues, too, frankly, is people don't think about these IP issues because they're like, well, look, we're a, small, agile company, and we're building all this stuff. And of course, we own the IP and we're not giving away our IP. Or they've built things off of open source platforms and never went to look at the, the license. And that's the kind of thing that can kill you. Because as you get into the mid-tier and the large business work, the government's going to sort of gun for you more. They're, they're going to know or think that you know what you're doing, and that you you understand how to play in these spaces, you understand all the rules, and you don't get as much of a pass on certain things. And they won't treat you as, as nicely. There's more gotcha. And I've seen that happen, especially in the IP space, where if 10 years ago, you weren't paying attention to something as a small business, maybe no one's really trying to grab your work. But as you're doing more sophisticated things that have more value, the government might be trying to latch on that, take more rights, and if you didn't follow every single rule to the letter, things can happen. And so that can derail your business and derail any chance you have it at selling because all of these things can come up.
0: Excellent point. I want to say one question that has come in is how has COVID affected GovCon sales, basically in mergers and acquisitions in the GovCon space? Cy, I'd like to get an answer from you first, and then I'll give our answer.
1: We haven't seen as much of an impact as you'd think in the negative. I think in the positive, we have seen companies like certain private equity groups and things like that who are maybe actually being more active in the GovCon space as potentially like a shelter. So that's kind of what I've seen. And most of our clients have been doing okay because of the fact that the government is still spending money. It's kind of a a bright spot, at least in the local economy. But I don't know, does that jive with what you've been seeing?
0: Absolutely. I would say that for GovCon, COVID has either been a neutral factor or a positive factor. It's neutral because the government's been paying its bills. There's been some level of disruption, but not tremendous disruption. That's mostly neutral. On the other hand, the commercial market, some sectors have been very badly impacted. But there's still a huge amount of capital out there from people who want to do acquisitions. So I'm seeing some of that capital be redirected into the GovCon space. And one of the things that I'm finding particularly interesting is that, as you know, for the affiliation rules, as a general rule, private equity is not interested in GovCon acquisitions if you've got any designations. They just historically have not been able to go there. I'm seeing more private equity basically saying, we want to talk about doing an acquisition where the fund won't be the acquirer, but we'll have individual limited partners come in, each of whom will have a piece of it, but not a controlling piece so that we can continue to comply at least with the small business rules. You can't do that unless you've got a majority ownership for a veteran owned small business or women or that kind of stuff. But small business is one that I'm definitely seeing PE getting more active on And I'm also seeing more from the government in terms of giving out contracts based upon employees as opposed to on revenue. And that also gives a lot more breathing room and a lot more room for growth than you have if you've just got a revenue limit. For some reason, the employee numbers are substantially higher. So you could have 1,500 employees and be still considered a small GovCon company. So to the extent that you can pick your NICS codes, picking NICS codes that have you know, a higher number like a thirty, as opposed to a sixteen five, or picking out NICS codes that go by the number of employees, really give a lot of room for growth and opportunity when you're building your company.
1: Yeah, and we've actually been successful in a couple challenges recently where companies that have been growing and they've entered that mid-tier range for their standard codes that they went after, saying, "Well, has this procurement changed, or was the code ever right?" Don't assume that the NAICS code was right from the get-go because it's been used historically. And there might be some wiggle room in there to say, no, this shouldn't really go there. It should go here. And that would kind of push you. It's not exactly surviving the mid-tier, but in a way it is because you've now moved what it would be mid-tier for your traditional business is now back in the small business realm. That kind of kicks the can down the road and it's still important to think about the other strategies we've been talking about, like getting the management teams and really sort of learning how to work, pretending, if you will, that you're a large business and learning how to kind of sharpen the pencils, which frankly would let you win more volume. That Sharpening your pencil and understanding the compliance rules and getting a good team together, working inside more joint ventures and things of that nature to really help you take off and, and grow. So and that's also very important.
0: Other questions, that you know, have been asked are people basically saying, great, how do I get a higher, even a multiple? You know, if you're saying it's a $3 million company, I'd rather get a 10 multiple than get a three multiple. How do I do that? And there is actually a continuum. Each company needs to be looked at, you know, on its own, but it goes by a lot of factors. It's not just one factor. It goes by, are you doing prime versus sub work? What kind of work are you doing? Is it a commodity work? or is it something that's more specialized? Do you have employees that have high skills or are they essentially interchangeable? Do you have cleared employees or do you have a top secret facilities clearance? What designations do you have? And as we've been talking about, how close to a NICS code size limit are you? Because bizarrely enough, there are companies that can grow and by growing they become worth less. And that's the real message If you are coming up against your Nix codes, then your multiple may in fact be going down, not up. And that is an uncomfortable and disappointing place to be unless you're ready to really make the jump to the full and open. And as Sai is indicating, you're probably going to give up something on margins, but you've got to consider that an investment in the future growth because you're going to get it back on an EBITDA multiple if you succeed in getting out of the designations market and into the full and open. Another question that has been raised at times is PE, private equity, dangerous? And the answer is, like everything in the world, it depends. There is no one size fits all of PE. I think that a lot of us have an image of PE as the nasty guy with the mustache that they're twirling the ends, tying people down to the railroad tracks. And the reality is, There's some PE that's really not all that great. We really should not be playing in the GovCon market. And there's a lot of PE that know exactly what they're doing. Some of them only want to work in the full and open. And some of them understand how to represent nations. So I think that there's a lot of optionality in terms of buyers now that maybe didn't exist five years ago. Cy, are you seeing anything like that?
1: Yeah, I've been actually dealing with a lot of PE stuff in SBIR, which is Small Business Innovation Research. Because you're allowed to be owned, as long as you're not more than 50% owned by a single venture capital PE or, or hedge fund, if you're owned by multiples, you can still qualify as small or qualify for that program, which is a small business innovation research program. And so I've seen more activity in there recently from the, the PE space, as well as what you're saying, some of the ones that really know what they're doing have also still played a lot in the, the GovCon space and have been willing to take like a 49% ownership interest, to give up certain controls in order not to trigger things, to instead of doing options where they can buy out the entire company later, they do convertible debt, which can get you around some of the small business rules and sort of helping them work with that. So we've definitely seen more activity in that space in the past year.
0: A question for you, and si. I'd like to get your answer, then I'll give my answer to it. We're sitting here in the middle of September. There's gonna be a presidential election in about six weeks. Do you think the presidential election is gonna have any impact on MA either before the election or after the election? What implications, if any, do you think there are?
1: That's a good question. I think that there is worry. I've read a bunch of articles and stuff about worry about the capital gains rates if the administration changes or if Biden wins. I think. That's probably not going to happen overnight. That's going to take some some time. So I'm not sure if people are rushing to do it before November. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's an administration change that we wouldn't see more MA activity in the following year, like sometime in 2021,
0: to try to lock in lower capital gains treatment. Completely agree. I think that there's no reason to be saying, oh, my God, I have to get a deal done by November 3rd that's not realistic but what i think is possible is that if there's an administration change we probably will be seeing a difference in the capital gains rate and that would be relevant you know if capital gains rate goes from a 20% to a 29% that could have a major impact if you're doing a transaction so i think that there's likely to be some reason to again try and do deals between now and the end of the second quarter of next year. Cy, I wanted to thank you for taking the time and giving us your wisdom and insight, and maybe you'd like to close it down.
1: Yeah, and thank you as well, Sharon. I know you're always great to have and a font of knowledge on all of these things, so I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Polaro Maza production. Music and credits go to beyondsound.com, and I'm Sai Alba. Please subscribe to hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.